Hello and welcome to the podcast of TechEU. I am your host, Andre Degalor. In today's episode, I would like to play back a conversation with Robin Godneras and Bastian Haslinger from the VC firm Picus Capital. We talked recently and the main topic of this interview is one big issue with VC valuations, which often creates paper unicorns where there shouldn't be any at all. The research on this problem comes from the US, but it turns out that it's very much applicable to Europe. So let's Let's dive in because there is a whole lot to unpack here. Robin, Bastian, thanks a lot uh, for uh, joining today and uh, let us uh, dive in, uh, starting with uh, maybe, uh, Robin, if you could uh, give a short introduction uh, to uh, yourself and uh, to Picus. Yes, sure. Uh, hi, I'm Robin. I'm, I'm one of the founders of Picus and uh, also the managing director of the firm. And before I have actually an economics background from education point of view and I spent a couple of years at McKinsey. And um, yeah, when I founded Picus, the general idea was kind of to combine the best properties of um, business angel investing and VC investing. So to be completely privately financed um, and therefore don't have any restrictions where to invest, how to invest and how much and also don't have life cycles and exit horizons. So be very aligned with founders in a way that we invest early, but then uh, think about investing more like 10, 15, 20 years and building big companies together with the founders. And Mm -hmm. um, the other idea was basically that you're really kind of an entrepreneurial partner from day one, basically um, lifelong, um, but also on a kind of global level. So we we are a global company um, with uh, tremendous investment activity also in Asia and the US. Um, so we can also help companies to grow internationally um, or to source from different countries and so on. So yeah, a very long-term global partner. And uh, that was the main motivation behind founding Picos. Happy to be in the podcast. Great. This is really interesting. And uh, can you expand quickly on uh, what you mean by uh, not having uh, life cycles? Yeah, so we are completely privately financed. The initial capital came from Alexander Zamba. By now, we are in particular working with profits because every um, exit transaction or every IPO, we can basically get capital back. We can reallocate directly so we don't pay back our fund and uh, have to raise a new fund so we don't spend any time on um, um, on raising capital actually and um, yeah therefore we also do not have to think about uh, selling after a certain period we can stay invested for 10 20 years and um, if we are still believing in the potential of the company and i think that's quite aligned with founders because we are more thinking kind of yeah like an entrepreneur about um, about our investment and, and not so much in terms of life cycles and so on and how long have you been active as a fund? We are now active um, since five and a half years and um, yeah, growing, uh, have been growing quite tremendously. We are now at about uh, 35 full-time FTEs. The biggest offices here in Munich was close to 20. In New York, we are now close to 10. Um, in Asia, we just opened an uh, office in Peking um, where we are now um, three people. We are two people in India as well. We have 100 portfolio companies, but only 55, 60 are in, in Europe. The rest is in US, Latin, Southeastern Asia, India, in China. Um, so, yeah, very um, global landscape and um, growing fast. So at this point, how much money do you actually have, let's say, under management, if you can say it? Yeah, for us, it's always tricky to say because every actually portfolio value is for us quite the same as asset under management because mm-hmm. every euro we are selling is tomorrow in uh, euro assets under management. So we have invested so far about 100, 120 million. Um, mm-hmm. um, but we are planning to invest in the next two, three years alone, 200, 300 million. And because of this exponentiality, um, our portfolio value will probably hit um, a billion by end of next year. 
Um, we are now at um, uh, about half of a billion. Um, and um, yeah, that's basically also um, assets under management. And um, we are aiming for 10 billion in the next six to seven years. That's quite ambitious. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. And since we're on the topic of uh, portfolio value, and this is uh, very close to what we are going to discuss today, uh, Bastian, let's uh, turn to you. Uh, what is it that uh, you are doing at Picos? And uh, yeah, let's start with this, and then I will ask more questions. Yes, sure. Um, so I basically, um, I joined Picos already, like during my time at university. I was still studying at ETH in Zurich, um, like focusing on statistics and also quantitative finance. And like during that time, I was like getting in touch with Picos, um, uh, I was interning there basically, and then like started working part-time, um, joined the firm full-time one and a half years ago. Uh, I'm now a senior associate here at Picos um, uh, and basically cover um, together um, with Robbie, uh, uh, Robin and Florian, uh, one of the other partners here, everything that's happening in uh, like Northern Europe. Um, and I mean, this, this valuation part and that we will also talk about uh, today, I think, basically came during my time at university, right? So mm -hmm. I... Um, like I spent quite some time like uh, like in the really academic world of quantitative finance and how public markets work and so on. Then uh, like during my time at Picos, worked with founders from the very early days with companies like Alasco, RV Medical, Workmotion and so on. And then it's like also, of course, valuation like plays an important role, right? Because we invest in the companies, we partner with the companies. And for us, it's always, as Robin also mentioned, like, our interests are fully aligned with the interests of the founders, right? We try to build like successful companies. And then it's always like when talking about valuation, it is very like interesting when, when doing an investment. And for me, like having this, like, of course, being like with the one side of my head still in university and thinking all of like about all of these quant models, how valuation works with the other like side of my head, I'm at uh, Picos and talking with founders about, about investments and like uh, building massive companies. And that where really the interest came, like how does valuation in venture capital actually works um, because it like appears for outsiders which I was before joining Picos as quite of a black box um, and then I think I had this like super interesting opportunity like working at Picos but still like having the like academic environment uh, where I like still had to do research and that's like where I like duck deep basically uh, like in the whole topic of valuation and venture capital. Right. Right. Great. So uh, initially, uh, why we uh, uh, scheduled this interview was because I noticed uh, something that you uh, wrote recently uh, with the main idea being that the valuations in many cases uh, uh, on the VC market are sort of broken. So can you walk me through uh, this and uh, what's the problem and uh, what could be the solution? Yes, sure. Um... I think when talking about valuation, most people always have in mind public market valuation. So if you like, uh, they are like always the big news in the newspaper when like Apple or Google hit uh, like a tri trillion US dollars uh, in valuation and valuation in public markets is quite straightforward, like a very, uh, like a little bit simplified. Um, like you look at the market cap of a company, um, you always have like a share price of the company because it's like a publicly traded stock. And then you just like how many shares are outstanding. You multiply this by the share price and then you like have the market cap um, of a company. So uh, quite straightforward. In venture capital, however, there is of course no publicly traded company. It's like a like it's venture capital is part of the like private equity market, so it's like a private market. The companies are like private, um, like especially in the in the early days, um, and therefore like the valuations are like some kind 
of a black box, as, uh, like at least for outsiders. Um, in in uh, venture capital, the most commonly used method um, is post-money valuation. Um, so when you read like in newspapers about the valuation of a company, like the like this metric used usually refers to to um, post-money valuation. Um, and post-money valuation, like basically applies a similar um, a similar approach than um, like determining a market cap of a public company. In post-money valuation, you basically take the share price paid in the most recent financing round and multiply it by the fully diluted um, number of shares outstanding. So it's pretty much the same approach. And here comes like the problem also in post-money valuation. You multiply the share price paid by all shares outstanding. However, in venture capital, in every financing round, a new share class is issued. Um, so the investors in the most recent financing round pay a sh share price for the share class they receive. Um, the share class of the previous investors is different than that. And the share class that founders and employees hold is also very, like, even structurally different from the preferred shares that investors hold. Um, and by applying the very same share price to all shares outstanding, like, that's where the problem is. And I think, like there's like one prominent example where you can also read about, which very much, um, uh, yeah, very much shows this problem, which is the example of SpaceX. Um, when SpaceX in uh, 2008 um, raised a Series D financing round, 2008 was of course like very troubled economic period, um, quite illiquid markets. Um, SpaceX also had a quite difficult time um, uh, in terms of performance. They just like failed a couple of rocket launches, but they were in need of money um, because of course private companies. Especially SpaceX needs a lot of uh, needs a lot of capital, um, so they had to raise um, a, a financing round, even though the times were very troubled economically and um, like also the company uh, performance was uh, like questionable at, uh, questionable at that point. Nevertheless, they managed to increase their post money valuation by thirty six percent, and now like. I'm asking myself, maybe other people are like also asking themselves, how did they manage to increase post-money valuation, even though markets are very illiquid, so there's not a lot of capital available, the company performance is questionable, how did they manage to increase like the valuation by 36%? Then when you look deeper, you you would see that the investors like who like um, uh, who invested in the Series D financing round received uh, two x liquidation preference um, that was assigned to the shares they received, and a two x liquidation preference means that in a uh, event of an exit, the investors of the Series D financing round would get two times their money back before any other investor would get anything back. So the shares were not only with a two two x liquidation preference, but also senior to all others shares and by like being having like these very strong protective rights assigned to their share class of course like the risk of the shares in of the series d preferred shares is very different to the risks of the more junior share classes and the common shares hold by the founders are of course the like most junior share class and therefore have a completely different risk profile and now applying the share price paid in the most recent financing round um, which are like assigned to very co protective contractual rights applying this share price to all other share classes there is the problem right because the the, the value of this share class must be different than the value of all other share classes. And therefore, post-money valuation like gives somehow like a, a little bit twisted picture of the valuation, right? Um, and that's basically like the problem of post-money valuation. Um, and that's like like when we like started digging deeper to finding out um, um, like how can we actually do better.
And at the moment, right. it's more important than ever, obviously, because we see everywhere skyrocketing valuations, which also is caused a little bit by a lot of liquidity in the market. We see a lot of money being raised, and that money is raised in association with kind of higher share classes, with different rights, with different liquidation preference. So you really have to understand kind of what this means for your shares you already own and so on. It's important for the, for the founders, yeah. it's important for the employees and so on. So it's important to understand. Absolutely. So, Bastian, in your writing, you also referred to this uh, lighthouse paper in uh, this uh, on this landscape, which is a paper by uh, Gordon and Strebilayev, uh, uh, and they are both uh, they are both American. Uh, they write uh, generally about the U.S. market, about uh, U.S. unicorns, uh, particularly SpaceX, as you just mentioned. But uh, is it also something uh, that uh, can be applied uh, to the European uh, VC landscape? Do you see it happening in Europe a lot? Yes, I think it's a it's a very good question, and also like this comes back to basically the like academic background of Gornell and Strebulaev. Of course, like uh, like uh, Strebulaev is a professor at Stanford. Gornell, um, like was PhD at that time, um, and like they approached the whole problem from a very academic point of view, right? They had to they they needed to use publicly accessible data sets to build their model, um, and. As I said earlier, venture capital like is a private market, so um, data is not publicly publicly available. Um, and Gonalen Strebulaev, the only possibility they had to like get access to data was um, like by accessing publicly um, publicly available documents. And in the US, it's basically from a certain firm size and valuation they have to disclose some of their documents. And that is why Gonalen Strebulaev like used this data um, and were only available to use this because of course they don't didn't have access to um, um, to like more early stage um, startups so that's like that's the reason why they focus on US unicorns just because of data availability um, we at Picos um, as Robin mentioned earlier like we are like on the one hand a very global firm um, so we really have a global overview um, like over what is happening um, like in, especially in our portfolio companies but in the general uh, like VC space of course um, and then on the other hand we are very early stage investors so we invest companies from the very early days and then keep on investing over the whole life cycle so in our portfolio of 100 companies we have um, a couple of unicorns um, which we partnered with a couple of years ago but we also have the very early stage companies so we really have a very comprehensive data set of 100 companies spread across all stages spread across um, like all geographies basically and uh, we of course dig in into every single financing round of uh, um, like of the um, of our portfolio companies and are able to like see and measure what kind of contract contractual terms are applied and what we found that like what Gornell and Strabulai found for unicorns is globally applicable so like the kind of uh, contractual terms they appear like everywhere in like uh, in every geography like also in Europe they appear like in a different like they are not as extreme as you can find them in unicorn so like a 2x liquidation preference is like rather something that is applied in later stage in later stages of a firm but even there like not that frequently um, so i would say in earlier stages terms are uh, terms are like more equal and more standardized in later stages they can get um, uh, they can get a little bit more um, protective um, but the same applies like across geographies um, uh, even though there are of course like slight differences in geographies that the differences kind of are uh, valid in the us and also in europe that's obviously right um, but um, you also always have to look kind of at the kind of market environments which are uh, 
in some way different in the US and in Europe. For example, in the US, um, the markets are in general much more founder driven and um, the later stage investors or the newest investors always have much more power. So you see very often that kind of they are introduced completely new kind of terms and contracts in later rounds when a new investor puts in a lot of money because um, yeah, he, he brings up a lot of kind of um, asks and um, you don't need a lot of approvals from early investors in the US. So very often kind of um, the rights you might have in the beginning change quite dramatically later. Another point you have in the US is that often you are um, perceived as a major investor because you are above a certain threshold in terms of your shares you own in a company. But later, given that kind of yeah, more money comes in and more shares and so on, um, even if you keep on investing, you are at sometimes maybe the threshold is adjusted and it's much higher now and then you are not a major investor anymore and you lose a <laughs> lot of rights and you cannot do anything about it. Your pro, Even a pro-rata investment sometimes doesn't help you to stay over the threshold. So this can happen. So it's very important to understand what changes and so on. In Europe, you have a little bit different situation that often you need, in particular in Germany, the approval of basically all the other investors as well. Um, so it's basically more democratic, but sometimes also more difficult because a couple of small investors can actually cause a lot of trouble. Um, however, this also means that typically um, the contracts and terms you are agreeing on early on and can be held much longer, kind of longer term. And then that also is important to know because maybe you are pushing for a certain liquidation preference for your shares or kind of special rights. But that sometimes means that also all the new investors coming in then also get the same uh, situation. So it might be a good situation in the beginning, but later on, a lot of share classes come above you and they get better rights and then it's bad for the early investors. So you have to think a lot about what you're asking for early on um, um, and consider that. Right, right. So there is this problem. Uh, yeah, it's pretty obvious uh, that uh, uh, this should be accounted for. And uh, uh, there are, I suppose, uh, models uh, that could be applied uh, to account uh, for these changes. So what's the practical use for it, though? How do you, uh, for example, uh, use it uh, with your own portfolio? I think it's quite important that you understand it helps you a lot on negotiation because it is important to know, okay, should I kind of negotiate a little bit on the valuation? Should I push for this right or the other right? And what does it actually cost? And then you need to at some point quantify it somehow. Otherwise, it's difficult to understand kind of um, what's better. Is it better to increase valuation by 5% or get a 2x liquidation preference? You have to model it and uh, look at different scenarios. So it's important for the negotiation. But in general, I think it's not a kind of... Um, free way to just value a company on the valuation in general of a company so where you basically start also in terms of the ranges so many different other things are important right so i'm um, obviously kind of um you're looking at a lot of multiples although sometimes it's difficult to find a peer which is one-on-one -on -one basically comparable later on you're going more to the dcf direction and so on and then there are a lot of uh, qualitative things for example it's a fact that in the early stage if you have a serial founding team which already found a company um, successfully before then probably the valuation is double as high. If there's a lot of competition around the round, um, you can argue a lot with that uh, certain rights and so on make it kind of uh, less valuable and so on. But in the end, you have to compete with the others. Um, so and the competition of the deal is very important. So in general, the valuation um, uh, is still derived uh, as a result from a lot of different factors, but it helps you kind of in the negotiations kind of of certain terms and so on and where to push. And that's important that also the founders understand, but the investors also understand and so on. 
And um, like the the model that, for example, also Strabo Live and Gornella are referring to, and like also what we model uh, like in, internally, um, um, which is directly related to this contractual rights, is like really that we can quantify the relative impact of the contractual rights on cash flow. Um, so 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 that's like one small part of like really def uh, defining the final uh, the final valuation of a firm. But we want to understand if we apply apply like a certain liquidation liquidation preference if we like um, introduce a new ASOP if we um, like introduce an automatic uh, conversion exemption or so what impact does this actually have on the cash flow rights of the different share classes so the valuation model is more of like finding out like what impact um, like the terms have on different cash flow rights of the different share classes and it doesn't help you to define the, the right share price for the current financing round the like the share price still like needs to be done by different valuation methods and all also especially in early stages of course incorporate like the qualitative factors that robin mentioned um, but it's like very very powerful to understand the impact on cash flow and it's like one additional tool um, to understand valuation of a firm um, but it's like not a single source of truth model of course Right. Yeah. So you're probably you're basically uh, answering another question that I had because, like, when you listen to a VC uh, saying that, yeah, the valuations are broken, the valuations are too high, the valuations uh, should be counted differently, uh, you sort of think, okay, this is a good point, but it does sound a little bit self-serving. So you're you're saying that it's not necessarily that you come to the founder and you're saying, okay, so your valuation is way too high because this, this, and that. So we are going to uh, buy into the company, but only at a valuation that uh, uh, we uh, count using our own model. I think two points on that um, maybe the first one obviously we can come up with that argumentation in the first round maybe um, but given that kind of you also have a lot of rounds where maybe there are already investors invested and if we are kind of invested then the next 10 rounds we are existing investors so obviously you have kind of investors also with different hats if we are invested and we are not kind of investing significantly above Borata financially it's absolute great for us to have as high valuations as possible um, because you get a lot of capital for the minimum dilution possible. So there, obviously, kind of we would more be uh, inclined to argue for a higher valuation. Um, in the very early rounds, I mean, if you're looking at the environment today, you could uh, try to come up with some kind of argumentation like this, but it would not help you in practice a lot because you have all the different other factors. You have the competitiveness of the deal. And um, in the end, kind of, yeah, you have to win the deal. Sometimes you can argue for a lower valuation compared to what the others bid because maybe you have a certain angle, you have strategic partners with are super valuable for the company or some other assets you are basically bringing in where the founders might think, okay, maybe valuation is a little bit lower, but it helps my company a lot and I grow much faster. And then um, I build a bigger company in a shorter period of time. So yeah, these are probably the, the two different areas. We are in general kind of um, quite a continuous investor. So we like to keep invest early, but then keep on investing also very substantially. Our total amounts actually get bigger over time, but I would say that we are investing a lot also on Prorata. And if you're investing Prorata, you anyway, uh, independent of the valuation, keep your stake. So if you are investing Prorata in a 10 million round, you are investing exactly, um, basically you're ending up with exactly the same stake independent of whether the valuation is 50 or 100. So therefore, we are quite aligned with the founders and um, think about what what they want um, and are not too much um, biased by our own kind of financial um, situation. 
And I think what is also very important um, uh, to understand and very important to always distinguish um, between an inflated share price paid in the most recent financing round and implicit overvaluation based on protective terms um, introduced. Um, so like the like the share price paid in the most recent financing round, like that is basically defining what is the post money valuation of the firm, right? Um, and you can pay the exact same share price, which will end up in the same post money valuation, but you can introduce a 2x liquidation preference, for example. So then the post-money valuation is still the same, but the overvaluation of the firm increases because then the most recent, uh, the, the shares of the most recent financing round have this protective rights. So the other share classes must be worth less. Um, so that's always very important to distinguish here that we have like the share price paid in the most recent financing round. And then we have like implicit overvaluation based off the contractual terms. And that's extremely important to understand for like investors and founders, um, like what is the impact of both and also like to understand the trade of of both and that's why we like always emphasize that it's important to really understand this and like we we know that like even many vcs don't really understand um, like the impact of contractual terms on the actual like cash flow rights of a firm and for founders it's also sometimes difficult because it's quite technical and i mean for employees uh, um, of course for them it's like even more um, uh, uh, like even less transparent um, so that's basically what we always emphasize in inflated share price is one thing but implicit overvaluation based on contractual terms it's a different talking about right. overvaluation right. there are some funds which actually even create new business models based on these valuation dynamics i mean tiger global is at the moment i think um, yeah uh, quite a big topic and um, i mean what they do very often is that they come in after round um, a couple of months later and already pay up to double the valuation which was paid before um, and um, some people think like, oh, obviously that's overvaluation and it's crazy. And then sometimes they don't do a lot of due diligence maybe and so on. Um, but in a, if you look at it closer, I mean, they are very often also investing directly after, for example, an index, an Excel and so on. And obviously the founders are very inclined to say, yes, if you have three months later, you get double the valuation. Um, but since also Tiger is investing double the amount, um, actually the total return they might achieve with that investment is quite comparable to the investment uh, which Index and Excel did, for example, in the round before. However, um, they have kind of more preferential rights. Obviously, they have a, like, a higher liquidation preference and maybe um, in general also some other rights. And the other point is with that strategy, they are deploying the capital so much faster. They have cycles how they deploy their funds, which are much, much faster than uh, most of the later funds. And obviously, it's also... Um, kind of not only important what you what kind of return you do, but also how fast you deploy the capital because then the capital is already generating returns faster and then you can already start with the next fund and so on. So it's actually quite an interesting model um, which can also work, um, although a lot of funds also complain about the, uh, the procedure. <laughs> Yeah, and just uh, just out of curiosity, just to understand, is this uh, whole uh, thing about the impact uh, on uh, preferential uh, rights on valuation? Is this something that uh, the whole market, as in the whole VC market, understands but just doesn't talk about too much, or is this uh, is this not so? I, I mean, in general, of course, like VCs should understand the terms that are applied in the financing rounds they uh, like participate in, and I would say like the the like general mechanics every we see 
like understands or at least should understand because like that's at the core of their business however really understanding and quantifying the implications of these terms that's where it gets tricky um and i mean of course we don't have like direct insights how other like firms um, like handle this um but like building a model like this like it's quite complex right and like getting this very deep understanding into like the relative impact on cash flow rights and so on um like um like re really requires a very good knowledge um, like on the terms and their implications um and like i feel quite confident to say that this is like not industry standard um like to really dig in uh, like that deep i would agree in a sense that kind of everybody in the vc industry should know basically that it makes a difference and that certain rights have a positive or negative impact on your kind of previous investment or share class but on the quantification it gets really tricky there's also not black and white on the quantification because there are also underlying assumptions what kind of probabilities you see behind different scenarios and so on but um i think uh, if it comes to okay um concrete decision kind of would it be better now for me to have the valuation a little bit in the other direction or to have that right and that you can then compare it quantitatively i think very few um, um and uh, so that's definitely not market standard uh, and we are also trying to educate our founders in our portfolio to really kind of think it through and know what you're optimizing for and be um, be smart in uh, negotiations um and yeah so i think it's something where the market still has some catch up uh, potential to do right right i understand so we're almost to at the end and uh, the last thing that i wanted to mention and also maybe ask uh, your uh, opinion about is um, for the media uh, we are generally in this uh, case very much outsiders right uh, when uh, a background happens we have no clue what sort of uh, preferential uh, rights are being applied unless uh, uh, unless something uh, happens we have like really really good sources which doesn't really happen uh, or it's been public which happens even uh, less often so how how should we as journalists how should how should i as a journalist uh, understand uh, what's going on are there any clues that you would recommend looking at to understand whether these uh, sort of um, uh, very different uh, preferential rights were applied in uh, any particular round yeah i think in general kind of the challenge of course is that it's private companies so in general also uh, information like valuation and so on uh, is often not kind of published consciously obviously you can look into registers and so on and look at the stakes and then you can derive certain facts but we still see also in the media sometimes kind of valuations with pre and post being kind of um confused and so on and so um yeah it's very important kind of to be basically specific um and look at the numbers in the registers and so on and on the rights i think i mean obviously the media has always kind of some kind of sources and so on and gets the information somewhere so um if you know kind of that these rights make quite a huge dif uh, difference like for example liquidation right it's obviously important kind of um if you talk to sources that you also ask kind of explicitly whether in kind of rights like these were different in the round um, and not just focused on valuation as the only metric i think that's one thing the other thing is there's also a lot of catch-up still to do for example in the organizations because on the other hand there are also for example employees who have um, equity stakes and so on and not all of them are obviously uh, included in all the negotiations and term sheets and so on if a round happens so this is obviously also in the kind of um it's the role of the founder to also kind of educate the employees what it means for them and what changed uh um yeah because um, yeah it's highly relevant and also there um, um, it's still probably not um done best practice in the industry so i think these are the the two points from my side yeah i think in general like always of course 
it's most important for the shareholders to actually understand what is happening. And like, that's the first problem that we need to solve that like all shareholders, like especially including founders and employees need to understand the impact of these rights, um, like, and the like actual value of the shares that they hold. Um, and like, that's the like highest priority. I think where we like, where we are also putting a lot of emphasis uh, on. And then second, of course, like media and that gets tricky private companies the shareholders they can decide what they want to disclose um and and of course they're getting access to this and of course the rights are also like like very confidential and sometimes um, can be very critical uh, because it can also indicate um like the health or like give indications on the health of the firm um because valuation you always think the more valuable a company the more valuable the post money valuation the more successful the company is but like in the case of spacex for example if you apply a 2x liquid preference now in retro perspective it was not really an up round right like the post money valuation was higher but the risk at this round was like very like unequally distributed and that's of course something that's very important to understand also I think that's a it's quite an important flaw basically as well because in um, it's a lot of perceived in the in, in the media but also in the venture capital ecosystem the more you raise and the higher the valuation the more successful the company and actually that's not uh, really true because if you're having a one billion company but four hundred million you actually uh, created by raising four hundred million which doesn't cause any share price increase it's just a kind of capital taken on board um, and that could mean uh, that uh, the returns but also the success of the company is much kind of lower than a company which just bootstrapped didn't raise one euro and it was 700 million it's probably a much much better more interesting company so i think yeah that's also a flaw that you also have to look at post and pre's and from the kind of the distances from pre to post are no value increase of the company it's just money on the account and obviously then the money is worth more but the share price doesn't increase anything between the pre and the post so you always have right. to look between the post and the next pre that's where the share price increase happens and if there was introduced ESOP in the middle then again that's also kind of um, diluting shareholders and so on so if you look at investment success but also um, entrepreneurial success it's important to look at these things right and to be a tiny little bit cynical, back to your previous uh, point, Robin, uh, it would be very much in uh, our interest, as in uh, media's interest, uh, to have uh, more employees understanding uh, what's going on uh, with the new funding rounds, because the more employees know about it, the more potential sources we've got <laughs> to uh, learn about it as well. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, Robin, uh, Bastian, thank you so much for joining today. Thanks a lot for uh, sharing your insights and opinions on uh, what is going on. Uh, I wish you best of luck uh, with everything that you're doing and hope to talk to you again hopefully in person uh, later on thank you so much thanks for your time andre thank you it's a pleasure and this is it for our today's episode big thanks to robin and bastian for coming on the show and big thanks to you for listening today if you like the show follow us today wherever you listen to your podcasts and if that place has a possibility to rate and review the show please do that as well our audio engineering is done by soundpulse that is sound-pulse.com your questions suggestions and opinions are very welcome on podcast at tech.eu this was Tech EU Podcast. I am Andre Degler and I will talk to you again very soon. For now, take care and enjoy the rest of your week. Bye-bye.